Welcome to The Vinyl Preacher, your weekly podcast where we talk about the Bible and make a playlist. I'm Matt Cadle, pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Los Angeles, home of the world champion Los Angeles Lakers. And I'm Zach Pierce. I'm the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, home of uh, a football team that will play games without fans starting in November. Uh... What could go wrong? What could go wrong? No head coaches have come down with COVID, have they? Not that I'm aware of. Are you? Just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. Our head coach is not, the, but it wouldn't be reported by the media because it's a different, nobody cares. Love you, Carl Durrell. If you're a listener, reach out to me. We'll get, we'll get coffee. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Were there celebrations in the street? Will there be a parade down Figueroa? I saw actually pictures of people in Figueroa. Uh... There, Matt, uh, you going to be selling parking spaces for the parade at the church? Yeah, that seems like a good good idea. We'll mark them off every other space. Uh, mm-hmm. I require you to wear a mask and socially distance at the parade. It's going to be great. Yeah, I was, uh, I was running a youth meeting uh, at the time, and uh, the youth all showed up. It was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> they showed up, huh? Wow. I know, in the midst of this... Surprisingly, uh, amid this youth group of Los Angeles, uh, South LA youth, um, about half of them are rooting for the Miami Heat. So I thought that was That's really good. That's surprising. <laughs> but in the midst of the meeting, the fireworks started going off. Yes, there were plenty of fireworks. We love fireworks. A lot of LA uh, Lakers current events in the past uh, 10 months for your, your community there, Matt. I know, I know, it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I guess that is, huh. So, uh, back in January, at our con- we were having a congregational meeting when uh, someone shouted out that Kobe Bryant had died in the midst of the congregational meeting. Uh, and we somehow kept going and finished the meeting. Uh, and then, uh, the same day as our fall congregational meeting, Lakers won the championship. Nice <sighs> bit of symmetry there. Matt, could you uh, not like reschedule yeah. your congregational meetings to like never ever happen again? <laughs> I don't like yeah. any of the things that yeah, happen during your congregational uh, meetings. It'd be good. It'd be good. Because you're so, a Clippers church. You don't need... I do have some Clipper fans. There's at least one member that has uh, Clippers season tickets. I went with them one time. There, There's a few. There's a few Clipper fans. <laughs> Underdogs. But you right. see a lot of flags, a lot of flags, people driving around. They've got typically what you'll see in that right now is a Laker flag on one side, a Dodger flag mm. on the other. Uh, so, yeah, I just, it's nice to be a large market team. <laughs> I do feel a little, I don't feel bad at all for Laker fans, Matt. Uh, never have, never will. Um, but, you know, the Dodgers haven't won since 1988, uh, which is quite a while, you know. So I do feel kind of bad for fan bases that were, knock on wood, uh, the Dodgers uh, to win the World Series. You would not get that cathartic experience of, like, the parade of all of those things that go with it. You know, you don't, you're going to, that's disappointing. It's true. It's true. Yeah, the Dodgers are a little bit easier of a team uh for me to glom onto as a transplant 
I still don't really, I don't follow them in the way that you do uh, as a lifelong diehard Dodger fan. That's right. Colorado. <laughs> but they have but a, I lived in Bakersfield one a, time. <laughs> it's true. As you know, they have a lovely stadium. I mean, Dodger stadium it is, is really, really nice. It's, it's a really great stadium. It's, it's a fun place to visit. And their, their fan base is really uh, just diverse in all kinds of different ways. Like, it's just, it's fun to go to a Dodger game. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's less, uh, less obnoxious than I feel like a Laker game <laughs> would be. <laughs> Outside of the beating Giants fans to death in the parking lot, right, right, part that, of Dodgers yeah. fandom, it's really like welcoming. <laughs> There's a place for you here, uh, and you'll always have a good time at Dodger Stadium. It's very nice, very nice. They have a little playground inside. Uh, oh, really? Like on one of the terraces, like by the food stands, which mm-hmm. is really convenient when you've brought your toddlers that don't care at all about the baseball game. <laughs> I, I did not used to, to to know about those things. Like, I recall uh, learning about the in-airport playground playpen mm-hmm. situation for the first time in uh, Gatwick Airport outside of London. Uh, and I had never seen them before in my life, despite all the time I'd spent in airports. And now, every time I see them, I'm like, Oasis, there it is. Uh-huh. I see, and I see yeah. all the parents with the dead-eyed look, you know, like standing around them. <laughs> and I'm like, I've been there, you know, solidarity. Yeah. I give them the raised fist. Mm-hmm. Matt, things have changed. How so? Things have changed. Not only uh, has evil returned in the world with the rise of Laker fans, uh, but they've re-emerged from their tunnels. Uh, <laughs> I think we talked about it last week on the podcast that we, uh, I was anticipating entering another long period of not being able to see students or gather them in groups more than two. I was trying to read through this week uh, the multi-page public health order to try to figure out exactly how it affected us because a student had done so and made some suggestions to me. And as I was doing that, I clicked onto the county health uh, page and it had a new order. HUD said we are now at level A. We went straight from C to A in a week, Matt, uh, which is good. I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad. It means we're doing better in terms of the metrics. Uh, And then they introduced this new category called a regulated gathering. (laughs) Okay. This is what makes life so hard right now is that like you're constantly just having to assess whether the things that we used to do without having to put any time and energy into are healthy, legal, and morally okay. Which involves reading, you know, PDFs and charts. Uh, So they have regulations for dining. Uh, Now at level A, students can gather in social groups of up to six, uh, which isn't that bad, right? Uh, But then they have the thing called a regulated gathering that there's no special guidance for for 18 to 22-year-olds, but you revert to the county health recommendations rules or whatever uh and i think matt we're a regulated gathering because it's like a professionally like organized event i think it's mostly in the order to give the football team a loophole so that they can practice because they're not practicing in groups of six but it's there i called the public the the county health public health uh, folks to try to get a ruling on that to find out, are we a regulated gathering? And unfortunately, they said, uh, well, you're a religious organization, so this order doesn't apply to you. There's evidently a religious exemption to the entire order uh, affecting 18 to 22-year-olds, which, guess what, Matt, is actually not helpful. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, sure, there are lots of churches doing things that I would not want to do or be a part of uh, or invite students to be a part of. So I'd actually prefer it if you would give me more advice than say, Hey, you can do whatever you want to do. So, 
you've got Jesus. What do you need a guidance for? <laughs> oh my God. What, uh, what I've decided to do is I believe that we're a regulated gathering, clearly communicated with everybody, uh, and we are going to try to eat in person together on Tuesday, Matt. But there's one sticking point, uh, and that is that the new, the level we're at gets updated every week. It gets updated weekly on Tuesdays at 11 a.m., Matt. And if you're planning a dinner on Tuesday night, uh, finding out about a level change is a problem if it only happens seven hours before the dinner is set to begin. So hopefully we'll be gathering in person unless at 11 a.m. on Tuesday they say, no, you will not be gathering in person. Though they won't be saying that because I can do whatever I want as a church, evidently, which again is freedom's not a good thing always. So that's either good or bad. And, and uh, we're going to do our faux formal thing. Did we talk about that on the podcast last week? No. Well, here on Book Club... Uh, here another edition of the podcast I like books uh, Priya Parker The Art of Gathering one of the chapters is on etiquette and rules did we talk about it? the rules I think uh, so I just read it so I don't know if we talked about it or if I just <laughs> read it but go, go for it uh, one of the problems with etiquette is that the rules are implicit and you have to like go to cotillion or whatever to learn the rules with explicit rules they're more inclusive uh, even though you might like feel bad making rules because it sounds unwelcoming uh, but being explicit with them helps other people to join and be and know they're a part of the group so we decided to try um, to create some like special one-off rules for our gatherings to help them become meaningful gatherings in the eyes of Priya Parker. And uh, we decided a couple weeks ago that when we're able to gather in person for dinner again, we will have the rule that uh, that this bread and belonging will be uh, formal. Uh, and uh, so you need to come very overdressed. Uh, the event will not be formal, but dress required is formal. Uh, if you don't have formal attire, we will have some uh, like paper bow ties and stuff on site. Uh because you will be required to participate in this formal celebration of the end of your uh, lockdown. Very nice. Very nice. It's nice that you will have uh, paper bow ties available for folks. That's, I mean, that's, uh, you keep the rule, but then you have some, you make accommodations, you know? Yeah. I like it. Very nice. There it is. We are doing nothing of the sort and just continuing to survive. That's all, Zach. No creative ideas. Nothing. Creativity. Gas tank for creativity. Zeroed out. Zeroed out. Well, then can I tell you about another creative idea I've had, Matt? And yes. that I'm open Please to do. listener feedback. Fill this podcast space. I will fill this space. With your boundless creativity. I'm gonna, dear listener, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you all out of our uh, MBA subpod because... Uh, you don't need all the the fire that we have there. It's it's pretty limited and nichey. But well, well, it wouldn't be fair until we brought Ryan onto the podcast. Uh, but we don't allow heretics on this podcast. This. So, <laughs> so uh, come on, Ryan Chaddock. We'll talk about the Lakers and you too. It'll be great. And all the right. Odyssey, Go, the existence of evil. Um, that's a, going in hard on purpose, too hard. Um, Here's the thing. A grant and opportunity has come to us uh, a little unexpectedly. Uh, there could be some significant, uh, fairly significant grant money. Um, and so uh, here's the deal, Matt. We at Lutheran Campus Ministry University of Colorado have done a good job 
it's award-winning campus ministry, people are saying. But particularly, one of the things that uh, we have gotten good at is developing a coffee culture. Uh, so regularly, I uh, take students to coffee. Megan takes students to coffee. When we're really on top of our game, we have a, a thing set up with a local coffee shop where our student leaders can take other students to coffee to like do one-on-ones with them and put it on our tab. Uh, we've done all this good work creating this, but... We haven't been able to do so much coffee uh, this semester. For instance, sometimes your students are locked, literally, by the law into their apartments and cannot socially gather with anyone. So we are not able to do coffee while there. And now we can, and so I'm starting to work my way around and start to do some more coffees with students. Uh, but the issue is how sometimes there's really limited seating outdoors. I don't want to do coffee indoors, Matt, right? How do I know when I'm going to go to the coffee shop that there's going to be seating available outdoors? Uh, there's the stress of all of that, you know. And we've got this lovely patio, almost as good as your courtyard, Matt. We have a lovely patio uh, over at St. Aidan's. And so it's a great spot that I know is available. I can make sure it's available. Meet me at St. Aidan's. We'll do coffee outside. Uh, and what I've been doing is saying, hey, what do you want to drink? I'll pick it up on the way in. Because uh, the real issue here, Matt, is that my inability to do coffee with students has limited my ability to drink as much coffee as I would like. Uh, so I need, you know, I need more coffee. Uh, but wouldn't it be easier if we could just make coffee at St. Aidan's? Right? So here's my idea. We're grant writing for it now. Espresso cart, Matt. We're going to build an espresso cart a la, shout out, Finney Ridge Lutheran Church in Seattle. Uh, that's where I first saw the idea. They're doing it, well, nailing it with with uh, with Matt. I think uh, Adam Burt's church has a coffee they have a whole coffee shop. Yeah, it's like he brews or something, right? Like, like he brews or she brews or they brews. <laughs> what? We'll I'm sure Adam listens uh, religiously to the podcast. That, so I know you're going to try to figure this out, but I just want you to remember. Mm-hmm. The most important part is, what are you going to name it, and what will the logo look like? So just make sure that you keep that top of mind, your strategy. Here's something crazy, Matt. I don't know if you're going to be with me on this, okay? I might be going going a little far out there. Right. So, one, let me finish my espresso cart. The espresso cart would allow me right, to make drinks for students or students to make drinks for themselves when we're doing coffee there. Uh, eventually, when we're able to return inside, perhaps it'll create a better space that students want to be a part of, you know, during exams that we have, like, real fancy-ish coffee. Uh, but then, right, I can roll it out to the street and, like, pull shots, like, like, make drinks for students on, like, the first week of class, on the way to class, do some, like, outreachy stuff like that. The other thing, though, Matt, and I'm not sure if you're going to be with me on this, that we're looking at doing is grant writing for uh, uh, really kind of an outreach approach to the, to the grant writing, thinking about the espresso card as an outreach thing. But here's the deal, Matt. You're, you're mentioning this because that's uh, what I've considered to be a major part of my job, uh, coming up with slightly clever logos and names for things and creating them professionally on a word processing document called Pages uh, that I've become particularly adept at. Uh, I think we're going to grant right. I've got a friend who's a local kind of like marketing graphic artist person uh, to work with them to freshen us up, you know, help us get some consent. We got that's a problem with our particular ministry, Matt, that, that's not as much maybe for some congregations, but we've got our ministry name. Right. We use the official Lumen logo. Right. But then uh, our students don't know us as Lumen or even as Lutheran Campus Ministry. They know us as Bread and Belonging, but it's at St. Aidan's and St. Aidan's is a part of what we do. So we've got like all these different logos all over the place. Uh, So so I think we might get professional help, Matt. 
I mean, I want a hands-on role in this too, and hopefully it'll lead to a career where I can leave this job and become and do that full time. You know, do what full time? Uh, slightly clever business names and and poorly photoshopped. <laughs> like you're gonna be a barista? No, no, no. <laughs> make you know, logos. Good. Make logos Good. and pages full time. That's the dream job. Awesome. So, so Nathan, for you, you're gonna have a new. It's going to be Zach for you. Pastor Zach for you. That's your new ministry. Help me. This is the second zoo, uh, uh, call I've had today with, uh, with Nathan for you. Somebody asked. I was on like a synod-wide faith formation thing. They asked about if we ran into any issues with like food service stuff and doing our dinner deliveries and how they could help and like wanting to like make sure everything was legal there. And my response was, well... I trust the legal opinion of Nathan Felder, uh, who says that all things can be covered by parody law. And if we get into any trouble, we'll just say, this is actually not a meal. This is a parody of a meal. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Legal scholar, Nathan Felder. We should have a Nathan for you for churches, though. I feel like this would be a... Why why hasn't anyone done this? Yeah. Dumb first Lutheran. Oh my gosh. Oh. I haven't even seen that show in forever. It was so good and uncomfortable. <laughs> and uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. Well, should we talk about some texts? We can. They're not nearly as much fun uh, or as interesting as watching Nathan for you, but we'll play the hand we're dealt here, I think. Here it is Deuteronomy for you. Why are we suddenly in Deuteronomy? Well, because we just, uh, we finished Exodus, right? So they got to get the end of the story. I guess they want to take it from Deuteronomy. That's fine, Matt. That's fine. Whatever. You don't like it? I mean, I just feel like if you're going to go with a semi-continuous, like you're leaning real hard over the next month into the semi part of the semi-continuous, that you jump deep 34 chapters into Deuteronomy, and then we're going to get Judges. We do get Joshua next week, which is a continuation of the story, kind of. Uh, but then you jump to Judges, and then, uh, gosh, what is it? Um, it's some deep, deep cuts. Cuts. Is this a deep? I don't know. Does this one count as a deep cut? It's not, but it just is looks. This story people know. It just goes to the whole like, who really organized this whole Torah thing? Like, why don't, why don't you let me, straight white guy, get in there and fix this thing? Straight white Protestant. In addition to it being Reformation Sunday. Do you remember, I think it was last year that we had Rob Saylor on for Reformation Sunday. Oh, we did. Radiohead, and shortly after, he announced that uh, he was no longer going to be reforming. So, <laughs> it's a pretty good, we've got a good record. So, if you are done with Lutheranism, uh, come on our podcast, or on Reformation Sunday, it'll be great. We will, we will help, we'll help you. you. We'll usher you out the door. <laughs> That's the impact of the vinyl preacher. Uh, a reading from Deuteronomy. So this is great. It's going to start with a Simba and Mufasa moment mm-hmm. right here. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo on the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev mm. and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And Mufasa said to Simba, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. This is the land. Nobody lives there right now, so it's 
uh, free for the taking. It's this won't be morally problematic in generations to come. Oh my gosh. Uh, but a devastating line here. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Moses knew it was coming, of course, but still God has to <laughs> drive the dagger in and twist the knife. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. Interesting. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, just so you know. And also, most importantly, his vigor had not abated. (laughs) The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the period for Moses was, a mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Word of God, word of life. Dang. The end. Roll credits. The and you get you get Moses' last moments, you get his death and burial, you get the successor. Uh, they actually waited 30 days after uh, Moses Ginsburg had died before not oh, no. the successor, Joshua son of Nun, oh. uh, Comey Barrett to to replace him. And and then you get a little eulogy to Moses. You get a lot packed in to these twelve verses. Matt, I think there are two important things to note here contextually. One of them is that according to tradition, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which includes, let me check, Deuteronomy, according to tradition, were written by uh, Moses. Okay? Which is why Deuteronomy actually ends. And that's... I'm ending my story. It just trails (laughs) off like... All the scrolls are like that. It's just... Uh, so important to say, according to tradition, Moses wrote this, uh, which is just interesting. Uh, not that you have to believe it. The other thing that is just so incredibly interesting is the birthplace of Moses is not known. Uh, back in 2017, I took a group of around 15 college students to Israel and Palestine, and we went to Hebron, Matt, which is a hot mess of a current city. Uh, but it is also home uh, to what is now a split kind of religious site one side is Jewish and one side is Muslim but it is the traditional burial place of Abraham and Sarah again I said traditional burial place because how on earth would you verify it DNA so, testing no DNA testing it would be an option I suppose so and, and I, I, I say that to say like there's a lot of in, it seems like there'd be a lot of incentive to create a burial site to have a burial site to acknowledge for Moses. Maybe he creates a little too cynical, but but they have one for Sarah and Abraham, which are um, older than Moses, you know? Um, and so all that's to say, there, 
you're kind of getting to this historical Jesus stuff with Moses, right? Like, with the idea of Moses, for some reason the tradition has said it's important for us not to have a burial site for Moses, even though so much about his death is important uh, and very particular, right? That he does not make it all the he does not make it over uh, over the river, and he dies here, and he dies. It's kind of the text is kind of fighting itself too, right? Like he died, but he was full of vigor. <laughs> was it? It's like when David when there's like the Holy Spirit chose not because of looks, though David was a looker. Um, he was real good looking dude, um, but that's not what was important. Jesus, uh, God saw his inner beauty. Uh, similar thing here. Moses died, but not. It's kind of fighting itself. But so. All that's to say, I think it's important to lift up here, there is no tomb for Moses. And if you're going to read this story into the gospel story, uh, perhaps it is more than a foreshadowing that the tomb is already empty. Mm. There is no tomb for Moses. You can't go look for his body because his body's not there. Uh, And so if you're looking for a way to kind of read this text, read it through the empty tomb is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that is a connection. Good. Yeah, that always struck struck me that no one knows his burial place to this day. That's a nice theological connection there. It seems like it has I mean it's it's interesting that not only I mean you can read you can read that into it, um but yeah, like like you're not gonna build any shrines there. There's no towns that are gonna grow up around it. It's it is a unique thing. So 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 you mentioned uh burial place of Abraham and Sarah like is this a unique thing for Moses do we feel like that like we just don't we don't know where he's buried it feels that way right like yeah it seems like, like it in the narrative I mean yeah well, I mean, just to get into like the, our human experience, um, think about the things that are most important and what keeps you know some congregations alive well beyond their expiration date is to keep the cemetery going, right? We are going to have plenty of, especially rural congregations in the ELCA and across North America and in various denominations uh, who don't exist as congregations anymore, but exist as, as cemeteries um, because the family cemetery plot. Uh, are the things that are most important. Uh, I mean, it's tied into our whole statue situation right now, like uh, sociopolitically, that how are we going to... It's like the... I think I did it on the podcast, but that McSweeney's article or or a tweet I think I sent to you about how I learned all my history from <laughs> from statues. And in the past, people were very large and green. Um, but how will we remember, man, if we don't have a... Because uh, the statues serve as tombs, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so to slide into the Girardian take on this, uh, the tomb and the importance of the tomb for us goes into it slides actually into this like worship of of death, uh, because the death, remembering the death is the thing that is most important to us, uh, and that what God is opening up for us here, even in the death of Moses, and that's why it's important here that there's no tomb, that the death of Moses. Uh, is a bridge still into life and not uh, not a, not being trapped in death. Yeah. Yeah, there is a real path to the future here as much as you, know, you might on initial reading see a looking back to, to Moses, but as we prepare uh, for what we hope and fervently pray is a transfer of power Hopefully, peaceful transfer of power of leadership. And I pray always that power is transferred to those uh, who are powerless. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here we have it, a peaceful transfer of power right here between Moses and Joshua. Uh, and yeah, that's a cheap shot. But I do think as somebody that like, I mean, I was thinking the other day about um, one of the things that I love about the congregation I serve is that it has this rich history. I don't have very much patience for nostalgia, but as I look to the future, like I really, I really like this, this feeling of standing between the past and the future and feeling the weight of both of them. There's just something really powerful to me about that. And I think that this text does some pretty subversive things in that regard to point the people toward the future, even as it's giving thanks for this past leader that can never be replaced. I have no idea what that must be like um, to have a leader that that preceded you, who can never be replaced and was there for a long time during the glory days of a congregation uh, who I dearly love. But, you know, that's the caricature that so many folks face. I mean, even like... I thought of it because you're talking about churches that are that are cemeteries, and it's very easy to fall into that trap. But this text not only does plenty to give honor to Moses within the text, but also you've got you've got two things that point to the future. And one is this little seed planted in verse nine of Joshua, son of Nun. Right, like you're you're immediately anointing the successor to say this thing is going to continue from this point forward. Um, and there's something really critical about that, because if that was missing here, where's the where's the future? And then, of course, the other future is this promise of the land, and that's going to become really morally problematic as we go forward. But just using it as a kind of visionary imagery, it is looking forward to the next thing that Moses will not be able to get to. And there's, there's something really powerful about that, that this text is able to stand at this transition point between between two things. Um, I mean, you can even, you can even call it back to the art of gathering where she talks about these, these, uh, what does she talk about? Like the passageway or like the, mm-hmm. the entrance, like she has this thing about, um, like rites of passage or, or just a doorway. Right. And it seems like this text is kind of like that. It's like a doorway to the future. Like it stands between it's this hinge moment, uh, for this people, but, but really subversively like looks to the future in a really, a really powerful way. And that, could be good news uh, for us now to have a, to acknowledge, to lament uh, what is being lost right now, but also to look really powerfully to the future. Matt, I think we're going to, we're going to make some connections here. Miraculously, we're going to do, I mean, that's really what this podcast is about. Uh, During the, uh, before the eternal Equinox. It's about taking the semi-continuous and the gospel and making them complementary. Uh, we're keeping going. We're still here in chapter 22 of this adversarial exchange uh, series of episodic chain of events of, of, a, of a back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. When the Pharisees, well, I guess the Sadducees, sounds like Jesus just silenced the Sadducees, uh, and the Pharisees heard about it. And they gathered together, and one of them, who was a lawyer, Nathan, for you, if you will. He asked him a question to put him to the test. Jesus, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He quickly turns it back around. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day 
we get another it's a little echo from the from the old testament here nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions which is a good idea you don't want to ask jesus questions they don't most of the time you don't really want the answer right yeah so um here's what i got you know the first part's pretty (laughs) pretty easy or not easy to to do it's pretty plain uh the greatest law uh, we do have Jesus quoting what Deuteronomy and uh, what's the other? Um, gosh, uh, Matt, I come prepared sometimes. Today's not that time. Um, he's pulling from the Old Testament, which is what's important for you to know. Uh, he's tying together things. These are not disconnected. Like you say, Matt, it's a transition into this new uh, world, but not a complete cutting off of the old world. Uh, that has been. But then the part that is confusing for me, I think, is a little bit of the second part. <laughs> like, what is Jesus even talking about? How is it that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting a psalm, right? And then David calls him Lord, how can he be a son? And here's the unpacking I'm going to do for it and uh, my unfully formed thoughts on this is that this is similar to the question that, that Jesus gets asked, uh, I believe, a little bit before here, where uh, they ask him, where it's uh, God's the God of the living, then how can God be God of uh, Abraham, uh, you know, Jacob, Isaac? Because they're all dead, and God's the God of the living. Uh, and some of the Girardian folks I read this week, I thought, I thought, put it in a really interesting way uh, that I'm struggling to, to understand. I think, I think I like it, uh, but that their perspective is that, I mean, so much of what we've been talking about the past few weeks with the gospel has been this, like, contrast with the way of humans and the way of of God, Uh, and that the way of humans is a way that can only understand life in reference to, in relation to death. One of my fun cemetery facts is that in Europe, the standard thing when you die, if you're going to be buried in the ground, is you rent a cemetery plot for 75 years. Uh, that One of the things that is absolutely insane about North America is that when you sign a contract for a burial plot, it is for in perpetuity, which is why these churches legally will need to exist literally forever because they have signed a contract with a dead person that says you will take care of their grave forever, Sandlot style, right? Uh, uh, and and I don't know, that probably sounds, uh, to a lot of folks, would sound really offensive, Matt, if, I don't know, you guys don't have a cemetery, right? But if somebody came to church, like you were burying somebody and you had a cemetery and you were like, yeah, well, you could you could buy the plot or, I mean, you just could rent it for a while. And then we'll put somebody else in it. Is that interested in that? Uh, certainly not like the family of the deceased are going to be like, yeah, we'll just rent it for a while. And then, you know, get rid of grandma and stick somebody else in there. Uh, <laughs> what the writing kind of take would say is that that, that a part of our how much we, how important we think, you know, the wishes of the dead are and the and cemeteries and tombstones and all that kind of stuff is, is because of how important we think death is. Uh, and you can see it here in kind of some of the phrases, right? So, like, there are lots of kind of cliche phrases about uh, it's not about the numbers at the beginning or the end, but it's about what you do in the middle, right? That dash uh, is a way to say it. But really, that's just another death focused way of, <laughs> of living. What you, uh, because death is coming and you got to live in the dash. Um, but the, there's, but the, 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 I think it was James Allison who I was reading who said, Jesus' understanding of the world is so life focused, it doesn't. It's a way of understanding life on its own terms, whereas we are limited to understanding life only as not death. 
uh, and that the, the life Jesus holds for us uh, is not uncruciform, right, which is the, the, the lane I'm trying to stay out of here, but that it is life on life's terms, uh, life as life. And that is so difficult for us to put our minds around that we get stuck in this question, which the question they're asking is, how could the son of David, which is what the Messiah is supposed to be, be greater than David? Uh, because the logically doesn't line up uh, because it's it's stuck in this like linear way of thinking of, of, of life and death. And those are the things that are really important. And those are immutable and can't be changed. Whereas Jesus is just seeing the world as 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 life. Uh, and that's a part of his like blowing up your paradigm of like, how can be God be God of the living if. If we got the tomb of Abraham over here reminding us about how dead he is, that's an interest. I think that's the thing that seems more intriguing and interesting to me. Uh, what does life, on life's terms, look like in that as the kingdom that God is, that Jesus is inviting us into today? The answer to that question, uh, as I write my sermon and outline it, would be the greatest commandment stuff. Uh, but that's what I got, man. That's good. That's good. Boil it down. I'm going to do the obnoxious thing that you would do to me. What's the good news boil it take that stew and boil it down I think the good news here's how I said it I don't have the statement yet okay you try to make it boil down I never had the statement <laughs> gotta I think the setup is is to is an acknowledgement of and uh, um, solidarity in in the experience of life lived in terms of death because that's what we're living really acutely right now. Like you said at the beginning of the podcast, it's about survival right now. I said that in a in a in that same like Synod Faith Formation Zoom thing, like somebody is asking about the religious dimension of college life right now, and I'm like, I don't care. Like that's not very important to our community right now. Like keeping students alive uh, and mentally as healthy as we can, getting through this is what's most important right now. Um, and that's real, you know. Like the human experience is not not real, not valid. Um, but the thing that, that Jesus is bringing into the world and inviting us to be a part of is not life that's lived uh, in terms of in the shadow of death. Uh, if you're looking for more uh, Old Testament sort of revelations, but a life that is lived um, in terms of life. And I know I'm just repeating that phrase, but I think that sounds really good. <laughs> I think you got to flesh that out. And I think you, I would lift up the cracks, right? Like where it's breaking through the cracks. Our old people are risking stuff to feed college students right now. And from a human perspective, right? Like I've got little old ladies and little men who are bringing, who are cooking and bringing dinner to us, right? And maybe they're not, and they're not, and they don't need to be like knocking on their doors to deliver it to them. But we're doing our best to live not fully in fear of death, right? And I'm not, you want to be careful to walk the line of not calling people to like, don't worry about coronavirus is taken care of. Um, but that there are, in all of our communities, these kind of cracks in this fear of death place where, where the life is, where that unadulterated life of God is, is seeping through. Amen. That'll preach. Is it good news? That'll Did preach. I get there? I think so. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> I think so. What, uh, what are we listening to? Oh, Matt. Um, there is... Uh, the thing I didn't talk about on the podcast is the uh, equivocation of love of God and love of neighbor and putting them on the same uh, plane here that Jesus is doing, which is a really remarkable um, reforming of the tradition, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, Sylvan Esso has a new album out called Free Love. 
uh, which fits in nicely. And that's love, love. That's agape, agape. Uh, so there you go. Uh, and I'm going to put a track on there called Make It Easy, uh, which is kind of what Jesus is doing here, right? Like if you're like, I, I just went into some like pretty tangential, deep, dark holes that I don't know that I would be able to get myself out of in a sermon. Uh, but if you need to make it easy, Jesus makes it super easy here. Uh, and, you know, if you're looking for the answer, Jesus, this is the only time Jesus gives you like a plain answer to a question. Uh, it's really difficult. Uh, but there it is. Make it easy. Uh, then I'm going Johnny Cash here, Matt. Uh, ain't no grave can hold me. Uh, ain't no grave. I was thinking about that one. Yeah. You got him. Then, uh, gosh, I'm going to go new world coming. It came up. I'm intrigued. Maybe, you know, more, Matt, you're the Nina Simone knower. Uh, Nina Simone came up in my new like releases and there's a album collection called New World Coming and there's a track on there called New World Coming that was originally a song recorded by Cass Elliott, Mama Cass uh, about how there's a new world coming and I think that's what Jesus is doing it about. Uh, you can listen to the Mama Cass version or the Nina Simone, they're very different uh, but both pretty good. I hear Nina Simone every week now when she's singing Sinner Man at the end of uh, Lovecraft. Oh yeah, that's a Finale other... this week, oh Matt? What's going to happen? Oh. Where's the Kamiho? I hope the Kamiho doesn't come in at the end and like solve what the problems. The like, yeah. At this point, it's just it's so tangential. I just let it go. Like, don't bring it back. Yeah. That was a tragic episode. That was a good and tragic Incredible. episode. Going back to Tulsa and like having to watch the race riots for like after you. Oh my god. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I was. I'm amazed that these two HBO series, because Watchmen also started in Tulsa, that this is like being brought up, but also like. Like, that was incredible to have that depicted. But I thought Lovecraft did it even better because they spent mm-hmm. the entire episode there. And it wasn't just this, like, moment. Like, they brought you in to the point where you had to stay in the house as it burned. Like, that is, like, like what a what a move. Like, I just... This is incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's a hell of a show. You gotta... If you're not watching Lovecraft Country... The world may be terrible right now, Matt, but it, it truly is, like, remarkable. I'm watching Fargo at the same time, which is in uh, Kansas City, you know, like, in the 1950s, um, with uh, Chris Rock's one of the leads, right? Like, uh, so, like, the black organized crime and, like, the, the way that, like, racial re- dynamics, like, the realities of racial dynamics, the complexities of it are, like, in pop culture in front of people's faces is insane oh also that moment when he picks up the bat oh, gosh. <laughs> I think we were cheering never have I cheered to see people beat up by a bat but still it was oh it was you needed some catharsis in that episode and you got to watch him after he like after Omar I don't know I can't remember his name uh, yeah, Omar, right yeah. like uh, the main character is like I mean he's like told like Omar his dad like we're done you know like like, I never want to talk to you again because you beat me and stuff, right? And then he watches Omar get beat by his dad. And, like, oh, yeah. the whole, like, systemic, like, thing is just, like, dumped on you. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Like, I always wish George was my dad. And then he got to see George, like, not stand up for his dad. And, like, oh. Yeah. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that piece. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. And gosh. then also well, some, like, crazy time travel things and... You gotta love time travel. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Oh. Yeah, at the beginning, I told Chris, I was like, oh, this is gonna be like the Back to the Future episode. But then it went out way more intense. It got way more intense. Back to the Future did a little bit. 
did some different things with with black culture. I think. I think. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Michael I was J. Fox the whole, like, invented You got to not change the future, and so you don't disappear. All that stuff. But yeah, then it got way more intense. Uh, okay. Well, what am I listening to? So I cannot help but think uh, with this the beginning of this Deuteronomy reading. Uh, I had to think this land is your land. <laughs> as problematic as these verses are, it just calls out for a song like that. But instead of uh, Woody Guthrie's version, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings version of This Land Is Your Land, which is just so soulful uh, and just gives it a completely different spin. Uh, I mean, it's an incredible song no matter who is singing it. But um, but I feel like with Sharon Jones. Sharon Jones's voice, it just, uh, it does something unique to it, and I feel like it'll fit this text. Um, and then, uh, what else am I listening to? Uh, Future Islands has a new album out. Uh, I love their last one. So their single is Born in a War, uh, which somehow fits this somehow. And then finally, uh, the artist Yola, Yola, not Yolo. Yola. Yola. Has a song with the high women. So this is a, an African-American folk artist doing a song with the high women, and it's called Hold On. Uh, and it's just, again, feels like the song that should be played over the end credits of this scene in Deuteronomy 34. Wow. I like it, Matt. I like it. Um, gosh, you're keeping your kind of uh, country-western... It's, streak it's going to this year. That's cool. I like it. I like it. You got to listen to, uh, I got one to send you. Brink Cobb is not perfect. He is not like as good as, like you want to like somebody the way that you like, uh, that, who's that Kentucky guy you put on the playlist the other week? Uh, Tyler, <laughs> what's his face? Uh, I find some uh, occasionally yeah. like there's a problem that like, not problematic, just like, you know, but there's some yeah. good stuff there. Matt, uh, I believe we received a Facebook message this week from a listener demanding uh, retraction or correction. Uh-oh. Uh, the Uh-oh. Reverend Christopher Sohevner of Clemson, uh, South Carolina, wanted us to make it remarkably clear that he is not a fan of Lindsey Graham and that just because he knows staffers uh, in his office uh, is because he's trying to get them to do things he wants them to do, which is not what Lindsey wants to do, uh, and that he has no association in any sort of uh, peaceful, uh, friendly, familial way with Lindsey Graham. <laughs> and I just want to say, like, I don't, I don't know if that needs a correction. I felt like that was an unstated, uh, you know, starting point because... Yeah. Would? Yeah, no, my my assumption was never uh, that Chris was, like, <laughs> working for the team or something. Uh, but just, it was more it was more the, the realization. I, I think what you said was that South Carolina is a small state. It's <laughs> a small like state. That was part of what I took away from it. But also, yeah, like, Chris's, like, example of, like, this is what you, you got to, like, you got to be connected. You got to know people. It doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know working for them so yeah I, I understand and I'm glad to have that clarification uh, the last thing I'd like to add to the podcast this week Matt is a, a testimonial story uh, that I thought worth sharing about Lindsey Graham on the podcast uh, to make it clear <laughs> where uh, where things are at with, with most people in my world uh, a lifetime registered Republican uh, who I am uh, personally close to uh, told me recently uh, that they would move they live in North Carolina they would move to South Carolina just to vote against Lindsey Graham <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was good 
So good luck, Lindsay. Lindsay, come on the pod. Defend yourself or whatever. I mean, we'd love to have you for sure. Sure. Jamie, too. Like, we'll take any guest that boosts our profile. (laughs) I can't believe Chris wants a retraction. That's great. (laughs) That's great. I did not. Yeah. Yeah, I did not mean to imply that. uh, I just... We don't always get it right on the podcast, but but in the end, you know, we're like <laughs> we're like the coming of the kingdom. You know, it's not always going to be perfect, yeah. but in the end, uh, mm-hmm. right? It'll get. We'll get there. We'll get there. Well, and when we it's, when uh, we do, Matt. Yeah. When we do, it'll be uh, real vinyl. 